Well, what is up, Substance? Make some noise wherever you are at. Come on, we want to welcome everybody downtown, West Side, Monterey, Mexico. All of the churches joining us. We are in the middle of our series called Fight Night, and I'll explain it a little bit more, but I just, I love you guys. Can I just quickly say, I love you guys so much, for real. Like, I, I would do a big, giant kumbaya group hug at the altar if we could have time for it, but we don't. And uh, no, for real though, you guys, I, I, just, I just wanted to quickly say before I dive into my message today, uh, how much I appreciate all of you and how much I appreciate being a part of the church. I, I just, many of you guys know, a little over a week ago, my family uh, experienced a pretty traumatic accident. Uh, a while back, my 16-year-old son got diagnosed with a rather intense uh, type of epilepsy, and then to make matters worse, it, it, it's almost up until this point, it's been a little bit more of a drug-resistant type. We haven't found the right, uh, really, concoction to prevent some of the seizures from happening, full-on tonic-clonic uh, seizures. And of course, this last week, uh, he almost died because he had a full-on tonic-clonic uh, grand mal seizure, and in the process of, of the seizure, he ended up falling uh, head face or face first into a mirror and uh, shattered the mirror and then had the seizure on that. And uh, he ended up getting a lot of uh, large pieces of glass uh, up into his neck, up into his cheek, his face, his forehead. And uh, of course, I had to call an ambulance to keep him from bleeding out. It was pretty, it was pretty awful. And um, I know I posted on social media about it. Uh, a little bit, but I, I, I couldn't be fully honest on social media because it would have been too gory to get into all the details. It was a lot worse, though, than uh, maybe what I posted on social media. I, I still felt really compelled to post on it because I, I, I just, I really needed prayer, and you guys, wow. I, my wife and I were so overwhelmed by the amount of love that you guys showed us, by the amount of prayers that you guys uh, put towards the uh, towards all of this. I, I mean, as overwhelmed as I was <clears throat> by the trauma, I was even more overwhelmed by all of your love, by all of your generosity. And so, you guys, seriously, my wife and I have been so supported throughout all of this all week long. Carolyn and I would be looking at each other, saying, "Wow, look, look who's praying for us today." Look who's fasting for us today. Look, like so many of you guys gave so many gifts to uh, my son, and he was so blessed, if I could just say that uh, on behalf of him. As overwhelmed as we were with the trauma, we were more overwhelmed by the love that comes from his church. Jimmy and Irene Rollins, obviously, they flew up here just to encourage us, lift our burdens, preach to you guys. And they're busy, you know what I'm saying? Like, that, they, like, that was a big deal. And uh, by the way, my son's recovery is nothing short of a miracle. You guys, he has been recovering so fast. Uh, if you guys could have, for real, and he's in church today. And uh, he's in church today. And uh, if you guys could have seen him the day of, you would have thought this is gonna be a long road. Uh, but I, I'm just telling you, you just see how well he's doing how fast the, the cuts through his face are healing. It's, it's truly, truly, truly a miracle from God. And I know it's because you guys have been praying. And, uh, and let me just tell you, if you're here today and you need a miracle, you're in the same situation, I just want you to know, God can do the same for you. But let me encourage you, 
you gotta push into community and you gotta start assembling that community before the trial happens because God, that's, that's when the church rises up and shines the brightest. And so if you don't have a family, let me just adopt you into my family today. And I, I just, this last week, the, the scripture passage out of 2 Corinthians just came alive to me. And I wanna quickly read it to you. The Apostle Paul, what's kind of interesting is if you, if you put this in context, in 1 Corinthians was kind of a fight letter. The Apostle Paul was confronting him, saying, come on, you guys are a bunch of babies. You're a bunch of worldly pansies who've allowed sin to, d- to divide you. And to, I mean, so it's kind of an intense letter, okay? And, and so it was a fight letter, but he obviously resolved with them because in 2 Corinthians, the very people he fought with were the people that were fighting with him. And I want to point that out because a lot of people, they, they run from conflict, they run from intimacy in the church, not realizing, no, it's when you have that intimacy, that fight and repair that you ultimately have the greatest band of brothers and sisters on planet Earth. And we're going to see this right here because he writes, he, he had actually just talked about how he had some really terrible things happen to him to that, that got him to the point of almost feeling suicidal. He said he despaired even of life and yet... And yet, he says in 2 Corinthians 1.10, God has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again on him. We have set our hope. And in church, that's why he brought you here today is he wants you to place your hope in him. On him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. In other words, the deliverance comes how? As you help us by your prayers, then, this is the result, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. What does gracious favor look like? If you had gracious favor in your life, what would it look like? People would be like, man, that dude is lucky. Or man, that dude is like blessed. Like, why? Why does he always win the lottery? Why does he always get the promotion? Why does he, like, it always seems like somehow, even when bad things happen, it weaves together for good for that person. That's called gracious favor. But where does it come from? Gracious favor granted in in what? In answer to the what? Prayers of many. That means you gotta get vulnerable and ask people for prayer. I don't know about you, I'm kind of an independent person. I don't like asking people for help all the time. You know what I'm saying? I like to kind of figure it out on my own, right? And yet, you know what? Throughout life, I've had to learn to ask for, for, for help. And I know that's very humbling, but, but listen, what's at stake? Gracious favor, I think, and so, so for a lot of you, it really starts by us pouring ourselves into a Christian community. The reason why we want to push ourselves into church and get into small groups is because I, I want that gracious favor in my life. And it starts by getting a group of friends, but then even more than that, by a, a lot of us, we end up losing a lot of those friendships, that band of brothers and sisters, because we don't know how to do healthy conflict. We end up burning a lot of those relationships unnecessarily because we lack conflict skills, fighting and repair, fighting and repair. You see, here's the truth. The presence of fighting is not, is not necessarily a bad thing. Heck, fighting is what happens. It's the natural consequence of intimacy. How many of you married people know that? Right? You get married and all of a sudden everything. Why do you do the toothpaste like that? Why did you put the toilet paper like that? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like everything becomes a conversation, right? 
Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, unless, of course, you're, you know, really doing terrible things in response to the toilet paper. But I'm just saying, you, you, you work it out, right? You're, you're figuring out how can we coexist? How can we get to a, a, a better way of doing things? And so, in other words, it's the type of fighting. Are you fighting in healthy ways and then resolving those fights? Because, church, here's ultimately what's at stake. When we're rich in relationship, we will also be rich in miracles, when we're rich in relationships, we will also be rich in miracles. There's a direct correlation. In fact, even one study even found a correlation. People that had more Christian friends had a significantly higher odds of having witnessed a miracle. And so over the past couple of weeks, we've been learning how to, how to do this fight and repair, really how to fight like heaven. And I want to take it a step deeper by diving just one more layer into the art of biblical negotiation. But to kind of set up our Bible text today, I, I want to quickly tell you about a, a cool book I read decades ago, about 25 years ago. I read this book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And it, it's, not a, it's not a Christian book, but all the, the, the habits are, of course, based on uh, biblical principles. And of course, in the book, he talks about five different negotiation positions that you and I can take when we get into a fight or get into a conflict. Let's say, let's say it's at your job, you're trying to resolve tension in your job or tension in your family, and we all have it, right? Well, there's five different positions that we can take in resolving that conflict, okay? The first one is lose-lose. Uh, we both get into a huge fight and we end up in prison. Okay, some of you are like, wow, that escalated really fast. Well, some of you, that's how it works, right? Okay, lose-lose. Okay, the other one is win-lose. I win, you lose. Good for me, bad for you. The next one is lose-win, you win, I lose. Good for you, bad for me. And then, of course, we finally get to where we really want to be, and that's win-win, okay? We both win. In other words, God is going to do something special where both of us can actually experience joy in the midst of this. A win-win, and of course, no deal is kind of like a lesser win-win. I think the best way to describe no deal is, it's, hey, we know it's not gonna work out, so we're gonna walk away peacefully. We lost time, but we didn't lose anything else, okay? So no deal is kind of just a lesser win-win. Uh, now, I'm gonna unpack these in just a second from a biblical perspective, but one of, the, one of the arguments that Stephen Covey made that always impressed me 25 years ago is that, he made this argument that most humans have a dysfunctional tendency to go for win-lose or lose-win, that the, the nature of the earth trains us to think that these are the only two options, win-lose or lose-win. Those of you who've like maybe studied like the Enneagram personality test know that um, statistically they've proven about one-third of the population always goes for win-lose, they're overly assertive whenever their needs aren't being met. Another third of the population will always go for lose-win. They'll try to make their needs smaller when things aren't working out. In other words, they go for lose-win. Okay, so, and then the, the center third will go for one version, a slight version of win-lose or a slight version of lose-win. Okay, so there's this, there's, but, but it's these two dysfunctional sides of the same coin. Like, why? Like, what is it? Well, okay, um, Stephen Covey argues that it's the scarcity mentality, that, that, that somehow in our brains we think there's not enough to go around for everyone, and, and even Christians can have a scarcity mentality. Either God doesn't care or he isn't powerful enough to meet everyone's needs, and therefore it's every man for himself, right? And so some people, they go for win-lose, 
They go for win-lose simply because, not because they want to be a bully, not because they want to be mean, but because they honestly think, well, it's an imperfect world, and so somebody's got to lose in order for me to win, and so i got to go for win-lose, right? Now, is that a flawed mentality? Yes, because we serve a God who is more than enough. We serve a God who actually can provide for a win-win, but if we lack faith, then, you know, maybe we're just going to settle for win-lose. Now, you might be like, well, wait, explain this lose-win. Why why would anybody go for lose-win, right? Because that's like the, that that almost seems a little strange. Well, think about it like this. Playing, Playing the victim is a tactical maneuver. Okay, have you ever had the whose day was worse debate with your spouse? Oh, you think you had a bad day? You know, what are you doing, right? When you have that debate, of course, nobody ever really wins that, and if you win it, you really lose, right? Because you're, what you're doing, what, what you're doing is you're, you're trying to get pity and empathy and grace, right? So playing the victim is a tactical maneuver where you're trying to extract empathy Pity, you can use it to extract money, you can use it to extract servanthood. You, in other words, it's a, it's a political maneuver, and we see this a lot in politics where people will use like outrage, uh, and, and they'll use re- even revenge. What they're trying to do is get, get people to side with them politically in order to either revenge or avenge or whatever. And, and so we, we see these two extremes a lot on the news. In fact, most of the time when you're watching the news, like editorial news, not like informational news, editorial news, it's usually someone making the case for win-lose or lose-win. And it's like a, it's a constant dialogue that we get from the world and it gets, and sometimes it, 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 it infects the way we think and the way we negotiate. And so, of course, because ultimately the sad thing is, is that win-lose ultimately leads to lose-lose. If I'm always winning and you're always losing, guess what's eventually going to happen? A war and then we both lose. Or the same thing, vice versa, lose-win. If I'm always being the victim, at some point I'm going to get sick of being the victim or other people are going to get sick of me being the victim and they're going to declare war. You know, so eventually, so, so essentially, Essentially, of these five, these five options, three of them ultimately are lose, two of them are win, okay? Now, why is win-win so hard? Why, how, do we, how do we uncover a win-win? Well, for, for starters, win-win requires a different type of thinking, okay? So win-win is always focusing on where do we agree? In other words, let's find common ground. There's actually a lot that we agree on, and so let, let's focus on those things and expand our agreement until it, it just continues to overwhelm everything in our society, okay? In other words, focusing on common ground. Well, ultimately, a lot of people have a hard time doing that because, and here's why, it requires faith. Ultimately, it, it, we have to trust the Lord to reveal a third option, okay? Neither your way nor my way, but a higher way, okay? It starts with the assumption that maybe God wants to do a creative miracle. It's kind of like, like, like when uh, the disciples, they couldn't feed the crowds, and they're like, we got to send them away, and then the other one was like, no, you feed them. They're like, we can't afford to feed them. In other words, they, they locked into these two options, and God's like, let's just look to heaven. Let's multiply the loaves and fish. In other words, God has a supernatural option that is neither your way or that person's way, but a higher way. A lot of times, we don't have the faith to see God manifest that miracle, and so we end up going for win-lose or lose-win, when in reality, God had win-win, a miraculous option. And a lot of us, we just don't stay at the negotiation table in that awkwardness 
until God breaks through. Now, believe it or not, Stephen Covey did not come up with these, these positions. Ultimately, the Bible has taught these positions for centuries. And in a second, I'm actually gonna prove it to you through a little passage out of Romans chapter 14. So these are actually biblical principles, but I, I wanna take a little bit uh, of time to set up some Bible context that you may not have ever heard before. There's a lot of historical context. When you're reading the Bible, it's easy to forget that the document is like 2,000 years old and even longer, older than that. And there's a lot of context that sometimes a lot of people miss. And so if you wouldn't mind, I just want to give you a quick little history lesson of, of what life was like in the first century because it's going to totally transform the way you read your Bibles. Okay, so uh, what was interesting is early, in the early church, there was this massive debate about food sacrificed to idols. And if you've read your Bible enough, I mean, several books of the Bible will actually deal with this. First Corinthians deal with it. Uh, Romans deals with this. And you're like, well, what the heck is that? Food sacrificed to idols. Well, let me, let me unpack it this way. Okay, so now in the very, 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 very beginning of the church, the church was pretty much all Hebraic Jews. They were Jews that spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, and they lived in the, in the area of Palestine. But as the church started to grow, all of a sudden, Hellenistic Jews, Hellenistic is just a, a fancy word for Grecian, Greek-speaking. In other words, uh, they have kind of a Greco-Roman approach culturally. They're very different. There's Grecian Jews and Hebraic Jews, and these two groups, they, they were like oil and water. They fought a lot, right? So even though they're both Jewish, they still hated each other because one of them, it was kind of like Democrats and Republicans, right? One of, them, one of them they considered, you know, overly liberal, and the other one was considered overly conservative, and they would fight, okay? We see that happen a lot in the early church, okay? Well, even though they, there was a lot of tension, what was interesting is even these two groups the one group they both hated were Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, Hellen like people that were non-Jewish uh, and, and spoke Greek, okay? And, and guess what happened? As the church started growing, guess who started coming to church? This third group, and that's where the fun chaos started happening. And here we are. Okay, so now I, I just... So, so Paul had a lot of, he had to teach conflict resolution a lot in the early church. And, and, and two of the bigger issues that were, were common that he had to deal with was the role of women in ministry and, and this food sacrifice to idols. Uh, so for example, what was kind of interesting in, in the early church is the vast majority of growth in the first two, 300 years of the church was Greek-speaking women. In fact, uh, the early church was really a revival of Hellenistic women coming to Christ. And part of the reason why they flocked to churches is quite simple, is that Hellenistic Greek-Roman society was awful towards women. In fact, actually, in Greco-Roman society, women were not humans, they were property. And they were not, it was actually, to, to use modern expression, it was actually way worse than like the Taliban, okay? The Taliban would have actually been considered liberal uh, by Greco-Roman society. In fact, they wouldn't even allow women to leave the home um, in Greco-Roman society. To make it even worse, uh, pedophilia was rampant among Roman uh, cities. So like in Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, they would actually marry off their girls by eight years old. Okay, so if you think about that, that's pedophilia, right? And it was, it was rampant amidst Roman society. It was normal for them to marry off their girls by eight years old. And so generally, Roman men would never get attached to their daughters. In fact, actually so 
unattached were they that in Roman society, if you ever had more than one daughter, you would put that daughter to death almost 98% of the time. In fact, it was extremely rare for any Roman family to have more than one daughter. Um, so like for example, through infanticide, okay? So in Roman cities, it was almost unheard of to be a single woman. The idea of a widow attending a church, the reason why, you know, like when you read the word widow in the New Testament, it was extremely rare because men almost always outnumbered women by a factor of two to one, okay? In first century Palestine and first century Rome, uh, there were always more men than there were women, so it was very, very, very rare for there ever to be a single woman. Okay, so you can understand why it, you know, it got really complex when uh, the church, so the Hellenistic women, they'd flock to the church in Rome, Corinth, and they were like, what is this religion that gives such dignity to women that stops infanticide? In fact, actually, it was Christians that were the first group to say, hey, we need to start a, a minimum marrying age. Like, Christians were the first ones to say, you should not be marrying off your daughters until they're at least 13. And Christians were, like, non-Christians were like, that is so conservative. That is, that, that is almost absurd that you would wait until 13. In fact, Christians were the first to say infanticide is wrong, it is immoral. You cannot put your little girls to death just because you had a second daughter. They were the first to say infanticide is wrong. And so naturally, Hellenistic women were like, I, I love this. This is like, this is a massive step up for us. And they flocked to churches. In fact, Christians were the first ones to say, hey, women can actually come to the service and participate in it. It was almost like, so you can imagine as, as Christianity was spreading, um, Hellenistic women were like, what is this religion that gives such dignity to women? Which is kind of ironic, because nowadays a lot of people say the exact opposite about Christianity, but when you put it in its historical context, it was a giant leap forward. And if you're curious, I encourage you guys, read Rodney Stark's book, The Triumph of Christianity. He goes into detail about how, it'll absolutely fundamentally flip the way you read the, apostles, the Apostle Paul's comments on women. But one of the other consequences of this change is that it created all sorts of theological tension with all of these uh, Greco-Romans coming into the church when it came to food sacrificed to idols. For example, okay, if you went to the average uh, ancient city of like Rome or Corinth or Ephesus, there, you would walk through that city and there would be hundreds of temples everywhere. There would be uh, temples to all sorts of different gods and, and, and they were everywhere. And keep in mind, these temples weren't congregations, okay? So like, for example, if you, if you see a church in America, there's a congregation that's usually attached to that church. In Europe, not so much. But like uh, in, in Roman society, uh, temples did not have congregations, okay? They were, you almost have to think of them more like supper clubs, more like banquet halls that were themed to a Roman god, like almost like imagine like a Japanese restaurant that had a, uh, a theme to a, a Japanese god or a Greek restaurant with a theme to a uh, Greek god, okay? So most temples did not have, have priests. Most temples did not have congregations. Romans were not loyal to a singular temple. It was very similar to restaurants. You know, you like a lot of restaurants. These are the restaurants you like, these are the 12 you like, and these are the ones you don't like. You know what I'm saying? Like, and so uh, people were not loyal to single temples. The average Roman uh, was not loyal to a single one. They were just, again, state-funded restaurants 
that were devoted, themed to a certain Roman god. And the only staff they had was a chef and usually a couple caretakers, okay? So most meat, a lot of food would come from these clubs, from these temples. And so the big question is, is well, does the money, if we get food from these places, does that money actually support idol worship? And of course, in a lot of circumstances, I suppose so. Yes, it did. And so a lot of Jewish people just refused to have anything to do with meat sacrificed to idols because they believed that it was, it was ultimately supporting idolatry. And you could understand why they would feel that. But then imagine filling up your churches with all these Romans and they're thinking, well, wait, okay, uh, it's almost impossible to avoid eating meat from temples. I mean, it's everywhere. It'd be like saying, uh, you suddenly go into a church and they say, oh, you cannot go to 99% of all restaurants or grocery stores. Uh, it was almost like the Gentiles were like, well, wait a second. I mean, it's not really idolatry. It'd be like saying, if I, if I buy a Honda, does that mean I support Buddhism? Well, I mean, technically, Hondas are made by a lot of Buddhists, so I mean, I guess inadvertently, I, I guess you could make, so it, th- that's the way, they, the counter-argument was, is just because I buy a Honda doesn't necessarily mean I automatically support Buddhism, I mean, in that case, like, so literally, I can't buy anything unless it's sourced exclusively from Christians? You know what I'm saying? Like, how, how am I supposed to even live in the world like that? And, and so, essentially, it created this big debate on what are you supposed to do with this food sacrificed to idols. And so finally, Paul steps into this debate and he goes, no, 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 just everybody, stop fighting and think about it like this, Romans 14. He says, Romans 14, 14, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean by in itself. In other words, he's basically saying, Hondas are not implicitly Buddhists. Okay, is really what he's saying, okay? Food sacrificed to idols, is, is, it's still just meat, okay? Meat is meat. It's nothing is unclean in itself, but he has a caveat. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If you think you're supporting idolatry by doing it, then you are actually supporting idolatry. If you feel like it is sinful for you, then it is, in fact, sinful for you, okay? Another, maybe another example of this debate could be about alcohol. A lot of, a lot of Christians will talk about alcohol and, and say, well, you know, some Christians will say, well, the Bible technically says alcohol is okay, you're just getting drunk is not, okay? So it's not, it's not beer, it's what you do with it. It's drinking too much of it, it's the quantity, okay? Now, if you came from a, a, a home where you were abused by an alcoholic or if you actually abused alcohol yourself, then having alcohol in your home probably is sin. Okay, or or even hanging with people that drink it could be sinful for you if it will cause you to fall back into the lifestyle that you cannot afford to fall back into. Does that make sense? And so Paul is essentially saying, hey, listen, um, you, you gotta follow your conscience. If for you it is sinful, then you need to understand not everybody can have the same restrictions, not everybody can live with the same level of freedom. So you have, to, you have to discern that. So then he says in verse 15, he says, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, then you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. 
In other words, let's, let's, let's use the alcohol analogy again, okay? Let's say you're okay with a single glass of wine as long as you don't get drunk, and yet you serve it at a meal where your alcoholic friend is showing up, and then by you serving that alcohol, you cause them to fall back into their alcoholism. Well, guess what? If, the, if you did that, you're not acting in love, okay? In fact, you're actually hurting your friends. Your freedom is actually harming people who aren't capable of that same freedom. So in a roundabout way, what Paul is basically saying is, don't go for win-lose. It's a win for you, but a lose for them. Does that make sense, everybody? In other words, and then on the flip side, he goes, well, don't go for lose-win, or lose-win either, okay? Because he says, do not let what you know to be good to be spoken of as evil. In other words, he gives us the flip side of this. He's saying it's okay to defend your position as long as it's biblical. For example, you can't just say, well, I believe in punching babies because it feels right to me. <laughs> you know, I mean, the assumption here is that you're defending a position that's justifiable in the scriptures. Does that make sense? And you do it in a life-giving way. Sorry, that got strange really quick. Uh, but, but the reason why Paul is saying that, it's okay to defend it because, come on, we all know Christians that are anti-everything. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. I learned that the hard way when I became a teaching pastor because it felt like the, even the smallest things I would say, I would get mean letters about. I, like, I once did an announcement saying, hey, everybody, can you bring candy to this event so we can bless our kids with candy? Oh, my gosh. I got the meanest letter that week saying, how dare you? Say bring candy. Candy is ruining America. It causes cancer. It, I mean, how dare you say bless and candy in the same sentence? I mean, she, she talked in this letter as though I just started advocating for human sacrifice. <laughs> or another time I once said holy cow from the pulpit and I got a letter from somebody. Don't you know holy is one of the names of the Lord? You are cussing in the pulpit. And of course, in my mind, I'm like, I kept saying it week after week. <laughs> Every time I'd be like, holy cow. And I'd be like, oh. <laughs> you know, in my mind, I'm like, I'm so sorry. You know, like, I, I don't mean to offend you. I just, ah, I can't stop saying it, okay? And so Paul ultimately said, hey, listen, we're not gonna always agree on everything, okay? We're not gonna, there's gonna be these issues that are gonna come up and it's gonna be complicated. Yeah, the Bible is black and white about a lot of things. And there's a lot of areas of scripture where we make it out to be grayer than it is, but it's actually black and white. And then there's other areas where we make it black and white when it's actually gray. And so Paul says, in those circumstances, keep the big picture in mind, Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of all the eating and drinking, all these little debates, these little things that we think are giant, but it's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, imparted by the Holy Spirit, not by you living perfectly, but by God saying, hey, my grace is on you, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men, human approval. Therefore, he says, and this is the key statement, let us make every effort. What is every effort? Every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. I know a lot of Christians who are not living in such a way that leads to peace. And I think we see it all the time. There's a lot of Christians who aren't doing what leads to peace. And so the, the, really, there's only two categories. You're either leading people towards peace or not, okay? Do what leads to peace and what? Mutual edification. In other words, it builds both of us up. Win-win. Not win-lose, not lose-win. 
win-win. And he says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food, for the sake of your little hot topic issue that you think is the most important one. You know what I'm saying? Mutual edification. It's just a fancy way of saying win-win. Don't go for win-lose. Don't go for lose-win. Stay at the awkward table until you get the win-win. So then it begs the question, well, why? Why is win-win so stinking hard? Why is mutual edification so hard? Well, let me tell you why. On your family vacation, with your extended family, you're actually not negotiating a win-win. You're negotiating a win-win-win-win-win-win-win-win-win-win-win-win-win. In other words, you thought you were just negotiating a win-win, but actually you were negotiating a win-win-win-win-win-win-win-win. And it just takes a lot longer when you have that many opinions, right? It's, like, it's kind of like when your kids were little, they just obeyed, but now ah, they have so many opinions. <laughs> Meal planning gets harder as your family gets older, doesn't it? Everybody has opinions, right? And then it's not just a win-win anymore. You and your spouse, it's win-win plus the, the adult kid you have in your house. And, and you, you see, negotiating gets more complex with time, and some people are just not good at negotiating, right? We just, we want to go for win-lose. I get my way. And so we use the authority argument, right? I'm in charge, therefore, win-lose, you know what I'm saying? And we wonder why it leads to lose-lose. You see, now let's just, but let's just say, okay, let's say you're stressed today. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, you're in a fight where both sides are reasonable, free of, you know, abuse and personality disorders, right? Let's say in your, some of you are like, wow, that's a lot, but okay. There's a lot of assumptions going on now, okay. Let's just say you're having a fight where both sides, you're, you're biblically justifiable on both sides, Okay. Even then, a win-win can be hard, and why? Because I think a lot of times we inherit bad fighting habits, and as a result of those bad fighting habits, those bad tendencies we inherited from, maybe say, our parents, maybe say from our traumas, maybe say from our, our, the world, as a result, it can be very difficult to stay at a, a negotiating table with a person who's got bad fighting habits. You know what I'm talking about, okay? Just... Let me show you a few bad fighting habits. These are behaviors that make it hard for other people to stay at the negotiating table with you. I want, as I share a couple of these, I want you to ask yourself the question if you struggle with them. And I, I want you to look inwardly, okay? Don't be like, oh, you struggle with that one, clearly. <laughs> okay? So look inwardly, bad fighting habits, okay? So one of them is unnecessary escalation. Some of us, we were taught one negotiating tactic, and it's this. Yell really loud, as though somehow, that's how you get understood, is by shouting and getting mean. Then people will suddenly, magically, like, wow, you're right. Okay, now, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking facetious, but I think a lot of us, we act as though yelling is how you get what you want. Now, Obviously, that's not healthy, right? Cussing is not how you get what you want. Intimidation. I don't know about you, but I've never been intimidated into positive life change. You know what I'm saying? Or melodrama. I remember one time my wife and I were in a fight, and I was like working on something in, in the garage, and I thought, you know what? I, I had a hammer in my hand. I thought, I'm just going to throw this down dramatically, and somehow she's going to start listening to me. And of course, I threw the hammer down, and it bounced and ricocheted right back into my shin so hard. I was like, oh, God. Ah! And, then, and then I'm like, can you pray for me? You know, like it was just like, 
Talk about a dynamic change, you know what I'm saying? I thought for sure this was how she was gonna listen to me and she's like, yeah, I'm right. You know what I'm saying? Okay, unnecessary escalation. Some of you, you insert that toxically into the, the conversation. Others of you, you have the second habit. You have unnecessary shutting down. You do the exact opposite. You actually walk out of the room. In other words, I am going to win by severing communication, okay, or passive aggression. I'm literally just, I refuse to have this conversation until you talk to me in this perfect way, okay, and, and, which is never gonna happen, right, because conflict is awkward. You see, it's unnecessary shutting down. It's cut and run. Or the, the, here's another bad fighting habit, hurtful generalizations. It's when we're fighting, we say dramatic things like, you never help, like never Never, ever, right? Or you always watch your way. Like words like that, never and always, they're hurtful generalizations, right? Say, it doesn't feel like you're wanting to help me right now. Is very different than you never help, okay? You know what I'm saying? Or sharing accusations instead of feelings, okay? Instead of saying, you're a selfish narcissist, which usually doesn't go well. You say, when you do this, I feel like this. In other words, I'm not giving you a label. I'm not even making an accusation. I'm saying how I feel in light of these circumstances. You see how it's a little softer, okay? Now, I know that some of these things might be very, very subtle, might be very, very small, but you know what? You add them all up, and it reduces. If you, if you have these bad fighting habits, you're, it just adds toxin to the negotiation table and it makes it very hard for people to stick around. And so actually, so at my blog, now these are just a couple, okay, peterhaas.org, I actually have dozens of these. And I, I wanna encourage you, just take some time to read through these things because uh, over the years, the Lord has had to kind of weed out some of those things that, I, those bad habits that I've acquired through hurt. And all of us are gonna experience hurt in life, and, and so we gotta, we gotta kind of demine the minefield, if you will, otherwise it's gonna result in all sorts of dysfunctions in the future, but I wanna encourage you, just take some time and, and analyze what if the current tension you're experiencing with your coworkers, with your family, were entirely due to some bad fighting habits. Just read through that blog, peterhaas.org, or just Google Peter Haas plus fight night, and it'll come up what to do before, bad habits before, during or after a fight, and I just, if I could end with this, I, I remember early on at my first church, the Lord was really forcing me to deal with my own bad habits. And, um, and one of my bad habits was I would mirror whatever the person was doing in, that was offending me at that moment. So if a person was escalating, I would mirror the escalation. You know what I'm talking about. It, it almost felt like a natural default response for me uh, I, I got into a big disagreement with a particular pastor on my staff and it was over a financial staffing decision. We just couldn't resolve it. It was just like every time uh, the issue would come up, we couldn't resolve it. And the disagreement grew big enough where, um, I, I'll never forget, I was in the middle of a, it was a big leadership meeting, probably uh, several dozen people in the room and the topic came up and all of a sudden this staff member just erupted on me in front of all of these people 
made all these accusations that were just really false and painful to me. And of course, everything in me wanted to mirror his behavior. Like he stood up and pointed. And I just wanted to stand up and do the same, right? And let me tell you, I had all sorts of little juicy nuggets that I could share. I had, yeah, I've got an articulation gift. I can use it. Like, wow, 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 wow. Oh yeah, you wanna feel small? I'll make you feel small, right? Like everything in me wanted to do that. And right before I, I, I was about ready to get up, I just felt the Holy Spirit just like whisper to my heart, Peter, you can choose to not respond to that. In fact, Peter, you can actually choose to respond in the opposite spirit. And of course, you know, like everything in me was like, but I don't wanna choose that. You know, like, ah, like, no, I wanna, I wanna show him what it feels like, because it hurts. And I want him to feel the same hurt that he's inflicting on me. And, and, and I just felt like the Holy Spirit was like, Peter, it was like all these Bible verses that I had memorized were suddenly rising up and convicting me. Proverbs 19, it is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. You can overlook it. Or Peter, above all else, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4 a. All these scriptures were erupting in my heart. And, um, and, and you know, maybe you're here and you're like, well, Pastor Peter, how do you know it was the Holy Spirit? Well, here's why. Because the Holy Spirit usually doesn't tell me what I want to hear. And I know it sounds kind of basic in that moment, though. I, I, it was a revelation for me to realize, okay, getting offended is a choice. Because up until that point, it was, it was a natural default to mirror, okay? According to the patterns that I inherited, in, either from my traumas or my culture and all of that. And, and I remember there was this moment, I, I remember that moment where, where God just whispered to my heart and it was just really simple, Peter, you don't have to act like a victim even when you are one lose win, nor do you have to act like the boss and fire this guy, even though you are the boss, win, lose. At the time, what he was saying was definitely fireable offense, what he said in that meeting. And I did have the authority to take care of things, but the Lord was like, you don't have to act like the boss, even though you are the boss, win, lose. Peter, you can actually go for win, win by choosing to go for win-win, and I, I, besides, I mean, think about it. The devil loves friendly fire. Every second we're fighting each other, we're not, we set down the mission of Christ. We're not fighting the devil. And I remember just like taking a deep breath and, and um, I was dying inside, but as this guy unloaded on me, I'm like, just time out, time out, time out. And I looked him in the eyes and I was like, can we just pick a different location for this conversation? And I, I pulled him aside out of the room, sat down and I said, hey, Clearly, I'm not understanding how you're feeling. I wanna make sure I fully understand what's going on in your heart. And we just had this heart to heart where I let him, I kind of popped the cork, let him, and it was hard because he made a lot of accusations, but you know, the, the, the interesting thing about it is a lot of his information again was wrong and, and it turned out he actually thought I was gonna fire him no matter what. And I'm like, of course I'm not gonna do that. Like what? 
where did you get that idea? And then he, he, like, he pointed back to a, an old conversation, which was based on another conversation. And of course, I, I suddenly, even though I didn't agree with where he got all of his information, all of a sudden I was like, oh, it made sense that he was thinking and feeling that. And it, like logically, I could understand him and I was able to affirm, hey, that makes sense to me. And I was able to apologize. I'm sorry that, that, that I communicated it that way and that it resulted in that miscommunication, which resulted in this, which resulted in that. And, and long story short, we ended up having just this really powerful moment of reconciliation between the two of us. And, and I apologized to him. He, he apologized probably a hundred times. He actually went back to everybody in that meeting and apologized to each individual person and owned that what he did was wrong. And, and God did a deep work in that relationship and we're actually friends to this day. But I, I look back on that and I think, you know, because both of us stayed at the awkward negotiation table long enough, we ended up coming up with a solution that was infinitely better than what either of us could have imagined. And, and I say all this to say, and here's the big point that I want you to take away, and it's this. The journey to a win-win won't always feel like a win-win, okay? The journey to a win-win won't always feel like a win-win. Choosing right does not always mean feeling right. And you need to understand that. In fact, most win-wins require one of the parties to walk in biblical love, to overlook offense, to cover over in love. It's really what Jesus was meaning by turning the other cheek. It's, it's saying, I have so much trust in my heavenly Father to take care of me and my needs that I can afford to endure a little extra pain as I keep you at the negotiation table by turning the other cheek. I can afford pain to purchase a win-win. The journey to a win-win doesn't always feel like a win-win. But one thing is for sure, church, you will never have the strength to do this unless you are 100% convinced that God can take care of you, will take care of you, and he will defend and promote you no matter what. So here's the deal, this is how I wanna end. Can we just end with a simple little moment simple little decision, and it's this. Do we really believe that God loves us and wants to take care of us? And so just would you close your eyes right now? Let's do business with God. Maybe you're here and, and you've got, you're carrying around this wound from, from something or someone, and I just really believe that God wants to, to heal that wound. And listen, God may not fully agree with you, and he may reveal certain things to you, in the process of submitting, but would you trust him that no matter what, he's gonna take care of you as you surrender to him? Father, we can't always make sense of all of our conflicts in the moment that we're going through them, but Lord, we do trust that you are overcoming the world and that you have the antidote, the death of your son on the cross, which is the cure for all of our sins. And God, we realize that as we surrender to your, to, to your path, to your life, Lord, that you're gonna speak to us, you're gonna reveal yourself to us through your word, and that you're gonna, you're gonna bring about all of the things that we need in our lives as we surrender. And maybe you've never done that. Maybe you're here and you're like new to this whole God thing. Listen, I'm just gonna pray a simple little repeat after me prayer, and I just really believe that God is gonna, is gonna do miracles in the area of your life where you need it most as you just say this prayer. Just would you repeat this after me? Say, dear Jesus, Forgive me, renew me, and lead me starting today and for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name we pray.
you agree with that prayer, say amen. Amen. With all that said, we're going to have our campus pastors come on up and tell us where we're going to go next. I love you guys.